optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now what is it an appropriate time? What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com TFS. TFS. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, boys and girls. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show. My dog just got really startled. I'm at home for the holidays. And this episode, like every episode, it is my job to try to tease out the habits, routines, and specifics from world-class performers so that you can test them and apply them in your own lives. This is a special edition because the audio is coming from a live performance, although I'm not sure you'd call it performance, conversation, a collection of grab-assing and insightful, hopefully, answers from my guests at the 92Y, 92nd Street Y in New York City. It was my first live podcast event on the East Coast, and we had a blast. The guests are threefold. We have two favorites that you guys have loved in the past, and those are Josh Waitzkin, best known as the inspiration, the basis for searching for Bobby Fischer. He's thought of as a chess prodigy, but he has a framework and approach that he has applied to several different fields to become world champion in push hands, among other things. Now works with a lot of the top people in the finance world. We have Ramit Seti, and Josh can be found at joshwaitskin.com. He very rarely crawls out of his cave, but he joined us on this occasion. Ramit Seti at Ramit 
on both the Twitters and Instagram. He is the, I suppose you could call him, personal finance guru who has built a huge company out of his blog, which started way back in the day. And he is the best-selling author of I Will Teach You To Be Rich, also has a site by the same name. And then we have a new guest, that is Adam Robinson, very close friends with Josh Waitzkin. And uh, where should we begin? Well, you can learn about him at robinsonglobalstrategies.com, but check this out. Look at this bio. All right. So Adam has made a lifelong study of outflanking the competition. It began with acting as the co-founder, one of the two co-founders of the Princeton Review. So he developed a revolutionary approach to taking standardized tests. And his book became the first ever based on test prep to be reviewed by the Wall Street Journal and become a New York Times bestseller. After selling his interest in that company, he turned his attention to the then emerging field of artificial intelligence. This was in the early 90s. And he developed a program that could analyze text and provide human-like commentary. He was later invited to join a well-known quant fund, this is in the world of investing, to develop statistical trading models. (laughs) And then Following that, and currently, he is an independent global macro advisor to the chief investment officers of a select group of the world's largest hedge funds, as well as family offices. And he has a degree from Wharton, he has a master's degree from Oxford University, and not only that, he is a rated chess master who was awarded a life title by the United States Chess Federation. And as a teenager, he was personally mentored by Bobby Fischer in the 18 months leading up to his winning the world championship. So seems like too incredible to be nonfiction, but that is Adam and he is, he is hilarious. So I think you guys will really enjoy those three guests. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. And I must mention that the live event was helped by MeUndies and Exo Protein. They provided all sorts of goodies to the attendees. So check out some of my favorite underwear and lounge pants. I'm wearing uh, them right now, in fact, at MeUndies.com forward slash Tim. And uh, you can check out Exo Protein. These are the only bars that I eat these days. And I like them so much that I ended up becoming an investor and advisor to the company. No soy, no dairy, no grain, no gluten, <laughs> but paleo, 10 grams of protein, and it's real food. You can check it out. It is based on cricket protein of all things, which is about as pure and unadulterated as you can get with full spectrum protein. So check it out, exoexoprotein.com. And without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Josh, Ramit, and Adam. So you guys may be familiar with Mr. Waitzkin, the esteemed Mr. Waitzkin. Uh, I'll give a little bit of context for those who might not know him, and then I'll let him correct me. Uh, Well, many people think of him as a chess prodigy. If you've read or seen Searching for Bobby Fischer, very much based on his life. Although I don't think the word prodigy applies to Josh in so much as he really has a, an extremely meth, uh, methodical and conscious approach to learning and mastery. And he's applied that to Tai Chi push hands, uh, in which he was a world champion. He's applied it to Brazilian jiu-jitsu, first black belt, right, under Marcelo Garcia, who is the phenom, probably the most successful, best grappler who's ever lived. And uh, I'll leave it at that for now. Works with a lot of interesting top performers, and uh, we'll get into that, I'm sure. Ramit, where should we begin? 
it starts a long time with the long walks on the beach, both of us, and uh, turned a blog way back in the day into one of the most successful destinations and resources for personal finance and very much more than that, has a hugely successful company, has been featured in, was it Fortune? And a spread right aside to uh, Warren Buffett. That's pretty good company. Uh, And Adam, you know, I think I'm going to leave the introduction, Adam, our mystery guest, uh, to Josh to give just a little bit of context on who Adam is. Okay. Timbo, it's great to be here with you. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for coming. So Adam is a dear friend of mine. Um, my five-year-old son, Jack, would say he's a closer friend with him, which he, he's a beautiful human being. Um, Adam, back in the day, in the 1960s, was a chess master. He's still in a chess master, but he, that was when he was really um, actively playing after chess. That. After that, well, then he was very close friends with Bobby Fischer, for better or worse, <laughs> in, the, in the 60s, 70s. Um, to really at the center of the of the chess world back then. Then Adam founded the Princeton Review, so he's one of the most fascinating educational minds. He's written ten educational books, um, and I've watched Adam just work with my little boy, with so many people in education. He's he's a brilliant mind around the learning process. And then Adam took his kind of uniquely versatile mind and applied it to economics, macroeconomics, and that's the the world in which he and I met. Um, number of years ago, and Adam is a consultant with some of the, I can't say their names because confidentiality is a huge part of what Adam does, but some of the most brilliant and well-known names in the um, finance industry. He's an incredibly brilliant thinker in a lot of fields. And I love the guy. He's a really beautiful human. (laughs) He will charm all of you with his his charisma. He just captures the room. He, he tried to uh, pinch Ramit's nipples earlier. Which wait I, a second, wait a second. It's it was a welcome, welcome approach. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, no, this is this is a common greeting where he's from. Uh, as I've he been and I told. have safety words. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, we do have safety words, and uh, we're going to get into all sorts of nonsense because that's kind of my style. But uh, we have a very smart crew here. I thought I would just begin uh, by dumbing it all down. Um, Josh, can you tell us? Just gave me a warning before we got started. It was a, it was a tooth <laughs> caveat. Uh, what's happening with the tooth? Be very Josh? careful of things you say to Tim right before he <laughs> pulls you onto his podcast. I've learned that several times. I forgot it this time around. I have a um, number of years ago, I was spearfishing. Uh, Freediving is something I love. I was spearfishing and I, it was actually an interesting moment because I had just um, speared a couple mutton snapper for lunch with my family down in Uninhabit Island in the, in the Southern Bahamas. And I was just taking target practice with this kind of Hawaiian sling. It's like a bow and arrow. And I was shooting these little shells 20, 25 feet away, just stroking it. And I had reached this this realization where if you barely touch the spear, barely grip it, as you know from bow and arrow, like there was, I was just missing by a quarter inch versus large, longer. And I was in this beautiful zone and then my sister screamed, Josh, and there was a big, big barracuda swimming with her and I thought she was in trouble. So I released the wrong side of it. It exploded into my tooth. And um, so I had this wonderful snaggle tooth and I just told Tim right before that it came loose right before now. So I, I might... I, I could very easily have a snaggle tooth with a, a screw hanging out within about five, 10 minutes of the beginning of this, this discussion, which will add to the flavor of it. So I'm not those, sure why we're talking about yeah, that, but there it is. So for those of you listening on audio only, this is what you miss when you come, <laughs> when you don't come to a live Tim Ferriss show. Uh, I, I thought we'd begin and maybe, uh, maybe Adam, we'll, we'll start with you. We are recording this towards, say, the tail end of a year. How do you think about the transition from one year to the next? Do you have year's resolutions or do you have any particular routines or approaches as you close out a year? 
I try to take stock of what I've learned the past year. And I, I've learned three things that this year, and which, two of which you exemplify. And uh, I wish I had known them when I was younger. And, and I'd like to share them, because I, I think they're the keys to success. And again, you exemplify them. And the first is the importance of enthusiasm with everything that you do, absolutely everything. Um, the second is the importance of connecting to people. You know, I, I, I live in the world of ideas, and it's only this year that I've learned the importance of connecting with brothers like you guys. And, and the third, and this is best uh, illustrated with a, a metaphor. About 20 years ago, I met the dog who was in the mask. Do you remember the Jim Carrey movie, The Mask? <laughs> <laughs> so was that just like a personal ad or uh, this, this was the this <laughs> no I met the dog and his trainer oh okay oh I got it got it got it right okay so I met the dog and his trainer and we were walking down the street in in New York and the dog so this is a star dog right a Hollywood star dog and and so he was walking down little Jack Russell Terrier walking down the street and every time someone passed by he went like this and, so, and walk a little further, and then, and, and I thought, that's so perfect. He expects magic in every encounter. And, and I think that's one of the key things that I've learned, that if you expect magic in every encounter, you find it. And uh, like this. I, I mean, I'm really excited for you guys, because I know the magic that's going to happen here with, with, with this crew. So, uh, so that's what I've learned this year. So that's what I do with my New Year's. Do you now is that something that you ruminate on as an internal dialogue? Is it something you write down? How do you uh, are there any ways in which you attempt to ensure that you continue to pay attention to those things? In I just try to live it. I mean, there's no uh, you, you expecting magic. I just again, I, I picture that little dog walking down the street, like and 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 I lean into every moment expecting magic the way that dog leaned into every person. And, uh... Well, I think we saw, that. we saw that in the green room just before we get... <laughs> We're not going to name names, but to everybody in the room, even people you hadn't met, if he heard their names sort of uh, from far away, he would go, Jack! And just walk straight up and the person would be like, hi! And then big hug. And then thick as thieves right from the get-go. Uh, Ramit, what about you? How do you think about the, the end of years, the beginning of New Year's? Uh, I think about relationships. I think in the past it was, you know, I'm 23 or I'm 25 or I'm 28. Where am I supposed to be? And I think at a certain point, you, that sort of loses its, you realize there's no real roadmap, right? You're going to carve out your own path. Uh, the thing that became more important for me is who am I meeting? What's the quality of those relationships? And so if it was up to me, I'll basically sit in my house and work all day long. And that's just like, I love it. That's what I want to do. And I would just do that forever. And that's probably not the healthiest approach to life. So I try to force myself to go out, um, you know, not only maintain the relationships I have, but build new ones. And I think the end of the year is a really good time to take stock. So I actually have a list of every single person I met the whole year. I have it in a Google doc. And I just look at it and say like, like, this is is this, first of all, is this the right level that I want to be doing? Like, if I've met five people, that's, that's not good for me. Um, and also, is it just making lists or is it actually making new friends? 
Um, like I said, it would be easy for me to just sit around and just work all day. So are you then, like each? let's say you come home, yeah. you've had a number of meetings yeah. that day or that week, and on a weekly basis, you're inputting these names? No, I just write it down. I just write down their names. That's it. I see. Just so I can go back and look and say like, hey, these are amazing people that I met. And now I'm remembering, I look at it every week. Oh, okay, wow, I found this interesting article. I want to send it over. Oh, I'm going out to the museum. Let me text this person to come hang out. And it's just a good reminder for me that like, it's the, the business is the business. It's going to grow, this and that. But the one thing that I want to fight for to make time for is to build those relationships. What uh, would you like to improve upon most personally or from a business standpoint um, next year? Oh, my God. Easy easy by a factor of a thousand. Um, it's becoming a better leader and manager. Like I feel like in my business, we get the human psychology part of what we do. That's what we do. Um, but management and leadership is so infinitely complex that I think I could spend the next 20 years just getting good, not even great. How do you think about, and this, this might be uh, one that we get to as a group, but manager or management, I think, is is relatively easy to grasp. People can envision what that means. What is what is a good leader? How would you define a good leader? Or what are the characteristics that distinguish them from someone who is merely a good manager of, say, a team of 50 people or 100 people? Well, first of all, I'm a student, so I'm trying to learn that myself. Um, but the leaders that I've seen First off, I think they know when to speak up and when not to speak up. Almost like a good parent. Uh, a good parent knows when to get in there and like, oh, okay, you're about to fall off a cliff. Let me save you. But if you're just going to fall down on the grass, let me let you make that mistake. And that's something that I'm trying to learn, which doesn't come naturally to me. If it were up to me, I want to get in there every minute. And that's not a healthy way, I think, to, to be a leader. So that's something that I've been working on. My team's been telling me. Uh, and I have to listen to that. Um, you know, other leaders, I think, create a vision for where they want to go. And it's more than money. And that's something that, that um, I'd like to get better at as well. Well, you know, it's, I want to underscore something you just said, because it's something I'm also trying to get better at. This falling on the grass, like letting people fall on the grass. And I don't recall the exact person this came up with, but it was someone who's uh, in the B club, billionaire of some type. And they explained, actually, I do remember exactly who it was. Uh, and it was not somebody necessarily, I don't think he's in the B club, but he's certainly very, very successful, Astro Teller. So he's the head of X, formerly Google X. This is Google's moonshot factory, I guess now Alphabet's moonshot factory, where they are working on things like Loon and contact lenses that can act as glucometers, all these really incredible uh, bets on the future. And he was describing how in his organization, people would come to him for uh, conflict resolution. And, and he would make a point of insisting, even though it would take a lot more time, that they figure out how to solve it themselves. Because he said, if I step in and I solve your conflict, I'm the parent you come to for the, the quick and easy path, you will always come to me. And I need to train you to actually develop the skill set of handling this dispute, this type of conflict on your own. Uh, what about you, Josh? You're an introspective guy. You're very good at, at blocking out time for deep work. I think something that I try to emulate uh, to the extent possible when I'm not running around scattershot 24-7. Uh, what did what what the last days of a year and the first few days of a year look like or mean to you? 
I think that's a particularly intense question for me right now because I, first of all, I just turned 40 a few days ago and I, I took off for Costa Rica and surfed some big waves on my 40th and I was reflecting on the year uh, quite a bit. And I, I came extremely close to dying um, a year ago. As we've I thought you were going to say again. I was no, like, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> like there's a pattern here. Just, just to, can I pause? Although on the one wheel that came really close, <laughs> like a couple of weeks ago too, but not yeah. nothing like this. Yeah, the the, the shallow water blackout. Yeah, and I, I I think most of you have heard me speak about it with Tim on the podcast last time he pulled me onto it. But I um I was long story short I was doing this breath hold work and cold water immersion work. I made the mistake of doing it in the water. I've been a lifetime free diver, but this not doing hypoxic breath work. And I didn't have, I didn't know, even though I'd been freediving my whole life, that it was actually carbon dioxide that gave you the urge to breathe. Because um, I'd never done breath work that would actually wipe all the carbon dioxide out of my system. And so I went from this ecstatic state to passing out, blacking out underwater, shallow water blackout. And I was in the bottom of the pool for three and a half minutes plus um, after blacking out before someone pulled me out. And all the doctors said, 45 to 60 seconds, I should be brain dead or dead. So that I've been reflecting on this year through the lens of, of that experience. Um, and it's been, so I, ha, I have, you know, I, as I mentioned to you before, I, I've had this year of just waves of love, gratitude, and beauty flowing through me. And I, I've never felt a more powerful de dedication to every moment in life and to living life as fully as I can possibly live it. And, and, and you know, a core lesson, you asked about lesson for me that I think about broadly um, and across disciplines is how insanely important it is to be focused on the most important question to know what it is and that in this situation I had a technical oversight I didn't I wasn't present to the most important question which is carbon dioxide is what gives you the urge to breathe <laughs> but you know it, it, when you work with brilliant investors for example there's no better way to train someone in then then developing their ability to focus on the most important question. Same thing with chess players, knowing where to look, or martial artists, knowing where to focus on. It's not the great ones aren't who focus on more; they focus on less actually and better. And so, like that lesson for me, which I've applied to intellectual and physical disciplines my whole life, I, I blew it on in this critical moment of my life. And so, it, it feels much more um, potent to me. Do you keep, say, the most important question in X? Let's just say it's a project or a challenge or problem, whatever it might be. Uh, I know that you have a, a very consistent journaling practice. Is, do you keep that, pres that question present so that you don't make, for instance, mistakes like that using journaling? Or how, how do you go about ensuring that you don't miss that most critical thing when you need it most? Well, as you know, my, my journaling system is based around studying complexity, reducing the complexity down to what is the, the most important question, um, sleeping on it, and then waking up in the morning first thing and pre-input brainstorming on it. So I'm feeding the unconscious material to work on, releasing it completely, and then opening up my mind and, and riffing on it. And then oh, you're going to say something. I was. Yeah. Uh, you saw me pursing my lips like a goldfish. So here we go. Uh, the, the question that I had was, could you give somebody an example of the type of thing that you would drop into your mind so that you can digest it overnight like what what could you give us an example or examples of the types of things that you might yeah i, I actually at this use. point i've been doing this for like 20 some years personally and for now i i use question somewhat metaphorically so often studying complexity i'll study a like if i'm going to be working with someone i'll study a 20 page psychological diagnostic that i've that someone's responded to and then i will just release it completely 
and that that whole thing will be the question. And then then what I'll sit with, then I'll wake up and sit with it, or I'll do a workout and then sit with it, and I'll just see what arises. What what, what core patterns? What core themes? What core blockages? Did I pick up in all of that, right? Because the unconscious is so much more powerful at setting complexity than the conscious mind. And are you then just jotting these observations or emergent thoughts down on paper? As do you capture them in that way? Is that yeah? How? I, I well, on, I actually use Evernote. You do. Got I, it. I'm riffing on Evernote now, but but there's often a question as well. I mean, I, I find that most great thinkers are slicing through complexity like a knife through butter, and then they arrive at an area of stuckness, and they'll spend a long time on that stuckness, and they can spend consciously at that point days, weeks, months at that stuck point. But they can also study everything involved with that stuck point, sleep on it, wake up and just slice right through it. Yeah. And so, you know, for me, the question is usually that's that, that area of stuckness after I've, I've studied all the complexity. And that rhythm between consciously integrating technical information in, into my being and then releasing it and then seeing what, what arises is a huge part of how I approach creativity. And for those people who haven't heard my conversation with Reed Hoffman, uh, founder, uh, or at least co-founder of LinkedIn, who's called the Oracle of Silicon Valley, oftentimes by uh, A players in Silicon Valley. Uh, he has a nearly identical process, but, mm. uh, but he, I believe, does it effectively right before bed. You do not. No. Am I right? Okay. Could you explain your rationale for, for when you sort of infuse your mind with, say, some particular problem, data set, challenge, whatever it might be, and then let it go? What time do you do that and why? I mean, in my experience, and, and Reed Hoffman's awesome, and I'm sure what he does is just crushing it for him. So, But, but for me, yeah. and for people who I've worked with, I've seen the pattern of if they're thinking about it right before bed, they're actually thinking about it consciously. They're not releasing the conscious mind, which is a huge part of that. right? So you think about Hemingway's core principle, which you were speaking about when in, a, in that podcast you did about our best hits or whatever you called it uh, <laughs> josh wait to still just that he that he that you know a core hemingway principle of of writing and then finishing his work day leaving something left to write right as opposed to tapping the well finishing it all up which most people who are who are um externally driven in what they're doing or, or thinking about how they're looking or, or moved by guilt as opposed to something more intrinsic they feel guilty if they're not if they don't do everything they have to do as a, um, versus you know Hemingway's principle about doing just that. It's very interesting, but he would always speak about, and I read this when I was 11 years old, which is a big part of my foundation, I think, in this, in this habit. He'd speak about the importance of stopping your thinking at that point. Then he would relax, he would drink wine, he would, he would release a day. Drank a lot of wine. And also for me as a chess player, I found that if I studied chess openings up until bed, I was thinking chess positions. If I studied it earlier and then released it, then I was able to dream about the insight. So for you now, earlier, does that generally mean End of workday pre-dinner? End of workday pre-dinner. Yeah. And it's usually, I usually have a workout post-workday, um, like right immediately at the end of my workout, of, of my workday, I have some kind of exercise to do to flush my physiology. So it's before that workout. Okay. We're going to come back to the workout, but I want to, I want to rotate. I could spend seven hours with each of these guys and we have spent seven hours together, certainly. Uh, Adam, I, I'd love to know, and I've wanted to actually ask you this for quite a while, is... In your calendar, say your weekly calendar, do you have any particular things blocked out or that occur on a weekly basis that are particularly important to you? I know that's super specific. So if nothing jumps to mind. Well, nothing jumps to mind. I, I uh, advise clients, very large hedge funds on all global asset classes. So equities, currencies, bonds, commodities, and, and it's 24-7. And uh, so usually, and by the way, it starts Sunday night, which is 
when markets open up in, in China. So there's a, a brief window in the sense that what Josh does about consciously turning off his mind. I do that about three o'clock on Friday. And for the next 24 hours, I, I make a point of not thinking about global markets. And then already come Sunday morning, I have to get ready to hit the ground running. So that's usually when I get my ideas is Sunday because I've given the week over on Saturday to just unconscious dreaming. And then I have to hit the ground running. What are the first uh, few hours of Sunday look like? Do you have any particular morning routines or anything, boot up sequences that you use for yourself? Work out, meditate. Uh, Josh introduced me to heart rate variability training, um, which is outstanding. I'm, I'm the kind of person who can't still sit still for normal meditating. So what is your, med- so what is your meditation look like? It's just heart rate variability training. I just watch my heart rate uh, for 20 minutes, do it a couple times a day. Got it. So I start off the day with that. So it's like the cardiac equivalent of biofeedback or yes. neurofeedback. And uh, the workout, what is the workout? Uh, weights, very intense, get it over with, and then uh, sometimes cycling. And then, uh, and then I start to write down what, what, what I expect to happen. I think the key to certainly investing is to have expectations and then wait to be surprised. And one of the key things with investing, I don't know how many of you invest, but I think this is a life truism, is, is to be aware when you hear a voice in your head that says, and you'll usually squint your eyes, or you'll hear someone say the following words, doesn't make sense. And that's always a sign of something really powerful. So if somebody says to me, it doesn't make any sense why gold keeps going lower, I know that it's got a lot lower to go. Because what that person just said in saying it doesn't make sense is this person has a dozen logical reasons why gold ought to be going higher and it's going lower. And he says that doesn't make sense. But the world always makes sense. What doesn't make sense is his model. And, and, and this applies in life. It, in June, about a year ago, Donald Trump announced his candidacy. And his first, I think his first thing was, we're, we're putting up a wall, and, and they're going to pay for it. <laughs> um, and his numbers shot up in the polls. And somebody said to me, and I heard pundits on TV saying, that doesn't make any sense. And I thought, oh, my God. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> but that's precisely it. It means it's going higher. If a stock goes up and it... There's no rational reason. It means that there's some X factor that you haven't considered because it makes total sense now in retrospect. But then it didn't. So whenever you hear someone say something doesn't make sense, I was talking to Sam Zell, great real estate investor, and all he does, he reads the newspaper, and all he's looking for are things that don't make sense. So I said, give me an example, Sam. And he says, okay, I'm reading the newspaper, and I see that there's a Starbucks that's just opened up this is like 15, 20 years ago, in Mongolia, right? And he, and he thinks to himself, well, Mongolia? I thought they drank tea. What's with that? He's so curious about this because it makes no sense that he takes his jet, private jet, flies to Mongolia, <laughs> and he discovers that they've started mining. This was the, the beginning of the big China infrastructure build. And the only reason he knew about it was it didn't make any sense. 
So I'm telling you, that's the key thing. People stumble on these ideas and they dismiss them because they go, ah, it doesn't make any sense. And I'm telling you, that's where the gold mine is. Things that don't make sense. No, that's I all it. I pay attention to now. And on, on Sundays, when you're trying to come up with expectations, uh, or I suppose educated or just hunch. Uh, and I'm and looking for things that don't make sense. No, under, no understood. <laughs> There's so many things in my life that don't make sense, but uh, this isn't a therapy session yet. Wait until the tequila comes out. Uh, are, what is the timeline? Are you looking for things that day? Are you looking at things that might occur over a longer time horizon? Sometimes I've set uh, expectations weeks or months prior, um, and then I wait to see that things unfold as I expected. And if not, you have to revise your hypothesis. And I've, I've, uh, so one of the reasons I wanted Adam to be on stage is because we hadn't had a real chance to, to catch up in a while, and I was like, well, why don't we just do it in front of 900 people? Uh, <clears throat> so the... The question that we, I know we've chatted about just a little bit, but you have such an eclectic background. So you have the, the Princeton Review, you have the chess, and now global markets. What makes you good at those different fields? Like if, you, if, if we were talking, you're a very humble guy, but if we were talking to your closest friends and we asked them, what is his superpower? Or what are the, what are the unique abilities or combination of abilities that have made him good in these very seemingly unrelated fields? What would they say? Or what would you say? Uh, well, mm. I might have to pull in Josh. I'm I'm a heretic. So I always approach things uh, to disrupt the order. Uh, I, and, uh, and I start with looking for things that no one else will spot. And there are two places that I know people don't prospect. And I've already told you the first things that don't make sense. And the second is things that are really obvious. It's obvious. No one bothers to, to examine it. And uh, so in uh, global markets, I start from the, the, the uh, premise that uh, understanding is an illusion, that explanation is impossible. The world is simply too complex to understand. So I don't bother trying. And all I do is I watch investors attempt to make sense of the world and they form views so they're looking at the world trying to predict what's going to happen and all i'm doing is studying them because they're the ones who are going to make buy and sell decisions and affect asset prices so they study the world i'm behind them it's like playing poker and i was going to say i don't play the hand play the person across from you exactly and so i i and and so i see the hands that global investors are are playing so i don't try to understand the world i I just try to get into their heads in the same way I did with chess, right? Getting into the head of the position or the other player. And in, uh, in the SAT, uh, getting into the head of um, the test. This is worth sharing. It'll take about 30 seconds. Uh, <laughs> we got plenty of time. I, um, I, I went to Wharton undergrad and I got a law degree at Oxford. I come back to New York and I thought that what I wanted to do was write screenplays. I go to a friend of my, uh, my father's, and, um, and, and he said, so what are you going to do now, kid? Uh, you know, and I said, uh, all expectation, I said, I'm going to be a writer. Just like that, like full of expectation, you know, the recent grad. And he, he, this, is, this guy was one of the top producers on Broadway ever, of all time. And he looks at me for about a minute, doesn't say a thing. And then he says, well, then, if you're going to be a writer, I guess you better have something to say. 
and I, and oh, <laughs> shit, I, I, what do I know? I'm 25. I, I have nothing to say. And I thought, okay, well, I have to support myself somehow. And while I'm writing, and I, I knew if I went to Wall Street or worked in a law firm, I would never find the time to write. So I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll tutor kids. And, and I thought, well, what could I tutor them? And I thought, I know, the SAT. Now, you don't know this, but back then, nobody was getting tutored. And I wrote to every private high school in New York, and I remember there were 31 at the time, because I had to type 31 letters, the same letter, 31 times. It's like, <laughs> dear Dalton or dear Spence, you know, I just graduated. If you have any students who want to prepare for the SAT, send them my way. And out of that mass mailing, I got one student. <laughs> just a, a single student. And, and, and I, so I, I gave her a practice test. I said, you do this, and we'll go over it. And what was fascinating was that she got all the easy questions right and all the medium questions right, but she missed every single hard question, every single one. And just closing your eyes and guessing, you get one in five. She was batting zero. And she was smart. She was really smart. And I said, oh, Joanne, what are you? I still remember her name, Joanne. And um, I said, Joanne, could you just tell me your thinking process? And what was fascinating is she crossed off, let's say, choices A, B, and C, get it down to D and E, and whichever one she chose, the answer was the other one. And I said, Joanne, could you just explain the logic? Again, trying to get into her head, always about getting into the head. It's all about appearances. It's all about thinking. There is no reality. Plato would have made a lousy investor. Anyway, to get back to Joanne. <laughs> Short Plato. Short Plato, exactly. So, so, she said, so she says, well, I cross off the ones that I know are wrong. I said, good, good. Then what do you do? She said, well... I picked the one that I think is right. So I blurted out, well, you got to pick the one you think is wrong. And then I realized, oh, right. I just cracked the SAT. <laughs> the only reason a hard question is hard is that whatever seems plausible can't be right. That's why it's a hard question. And that was my first insight. And then I, her score shoots up. She tells a bunch of friends, and their scores shoot up. 10 students, 100, 200. Then I teamed up with a guy, and then we started the Princeton Review. So John Katzman. Who, who was, and, and I really apologize if, I, if I'm misattributing this, but was there a sort of a fictional character that you used to typify? Yeah, I, so I said, because I didn't want to hurt again. So you get schizophrenic, because then she would think, okay, well, I think that's right, therefore it's wrong, but wait a second. Like, she, she'd get into a feedback loop, right? So This is like every day of my life. would explode. So, so when I was at Oxford, my, 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 my Don uh, always referred to blogs as the man on the street. So I, I, I thought I would Americanize him, and I said, okay, well, ask yourself what would Joe Blogs do? And whatever he would do on a hard question, you do the opposite. And by the way, if you're stuck on an easy question, the ones at the beginning, um, you follow whatever Joe Blogs would do. And uh, by the way, the test, because of the, these techniques, they had to change the SAT because of the stuff I was doing. Um, that's, that's how you know you're doing something right, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's very different now, so you can't use those techniques. They, they... Did you ever cause irreparable harm to someone who actually had the last name Blogs? Which I don't know. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I, I hope right. not. <laughs> I hope not. Just, just, just wondering. Know. You mind if I throw in one question to dig in on, on Adam a little sure, bit? Sure, sure. Then I have a whole slew for, sir, our, for our silent partner here. So, so, so one, <laughs> one of the things that's so amazing about Adam is how prolific he is and how high quality it all is. And he's, he's 
in this realm of of economics in which maybe one of the first principles is don't speak publicly about one of your views because then you'll get locked into it and you'll be able to change your mind and yet he's able to and so one of the 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 things i think might be really interesting to hear you talk about is how do you avoid falling into constructs yourself Ah. when you're giving advice so consistently because I never have views on the market. I'm always agnostic. So all I'm doing is reporting how the market is positioned to respond. So for example, last November, 13 months ago, last November, early November, uh, U.S. interest rates, I don't know if this will make any sense to you, but we're 2.32% on the U.S. 10-year. And Janet Yellen was due to raise interest rates five weeks later. Uh, this is, again, about a year ago. And I sent out an alert to my clients saying that... Um, Interest rates were about to plunge to multi-year lows. And they said, that makes no sense. <laughs> and, and I said, precisely. And I, but I gave them the logic, and they understood the logic. Um, it, it's because one group of traders in the world has never been wrong about predicting interest rates. Um, and it's not who you would think. Um, well, I'll tell you, it, it's metals traders. They're, they're always right about, about interest rates. And um, anyway, so I always... Once a client asked me, I said, okay, rates are going lower. And he said, well, what would you need to see to change your view? Well, that's a good question. It's, it's the best question ever, right? It's the scientific method. If you can't falsify your, your hypothesis, you don't know whether it's true. If you don't know when you're wrong, you certainly don't know when you're, when you're right. So I said, oh, well, if we see copper versus gold rally sharply, then rates will rally. But if copper gold is it's going lower, then interest rates are going to go lower. And they went, they plunged. She raised rates in December, and by July, they were at all-time lows, which made no sense. Certainly to Janet Yellen, right? She was expecting them to go higher, and they went lower. So always that's the key thing with anything. And probably you could apply that question to, to relationships. Like, this is what I think. Well, what would I need to see? So you set that up. You set up that marker ahead of time. Because otherwise, confirmation bias will come in, and you'll start to rationalize. Yeah, well, you'll not only have confirmation bias, but then you might even have, if depending on the position you take, some type of sunk cost fallacy, uh, and just start layering problem upon problem. Right. right. And it's also, by the way, just as a side note, a great way to avoid debates or arguments that will go absolutely nowhere. Uh, if you ask someone, is this slightly different, but is there anything I could say that would lead you to change your mind about X, if that's what they want to have a debate about? And if they say no, you're like, great, I'm going to go get a burrito. Uh, you can argue with this empty chair because it's pointless exercise to begin with. Uh, such an important question. Uh, Ramit, I, you, you have, uh, you've really uh, intelligently run, I mean, from, from my perspective, the company you've built and set policies in place and really made a study of management. And I've watched you refine it over time where you've not only become more successful as a company and organization, but you've become more relaxed and you seem like you have as much bandwidth as you'd care to have, even though your default is just jamming, jamming, jamming. Uh, What are some of the most important decisions or different decisions you wish you had made in the early days? When you, were, when you were hiring the very first people, let's say? Oh, I mean, first things first, I wish that I had understood it's okay to let people make their own mistakes 
and the idea that I don't have to be instrumental in every single decision. Now, you know, we have a much bigger idea, a much more refined concept of big wins. Focus on the big things in life. Like, for example, the thing that a lot of people may have heard me say is, um, don't worry about lattes, right? This is a classic thing in personal finance. Everyone says like, oh my God, don't spend $3 on lattes, which is the worst possible advice you can ever listen to. Because we have limited cognition, limited willpower. We don't want to waste that precious resource on a $3 purchase, right? Get the big things right in life and you don't need to worry about that. I wish I would have applied that earlier on in the business to the people that I started working with. Um, That was sort of unconventional. Uh, The other thing that was very conventional was hire great people, fire fast, the sort of things you sort of hear um, thrown around. Everybody hears it, everybody nods, and everybody ignores it until it happens to them. So every one of my friends who runs a business, we get together behind closed doors and everyone talks about the mistakes they made where they should have listened to typical advice. And I think one of the problems if you get any level of success is that you start to think those basic rules don't apply to you when in reality they apply to you more than ever. So it's very important to just remember, get the basics right. And if you get the basics right in life, you don't have to worry about often optimizing at the margins. Like life works pretty well if you have a good job, if you have good relationships, if you have a solid roof over your head, things are pretty good. And that, that's a good basic thing. Yeah, not majoring in minor things. Uh, and uh, this is a lesson I had to learn for myself. Well, I've had to learn for myself repeatedly. Uh, I mean, letting the, the small bad things happen yeah. to get the happen. huge good things done. On, on the... On the, the front of hiring, were there any particular books or resources? I know there's a book called Who that a lot of the startup CEOs that I know have found very helpful, which is sort of a distilled version of top grading. Were there any particular resources or bits of advice? I know you've done quite a bit with Jay Abraham, but maybe not on the hiring front. Uh, what were the resources or books or otherwise that you found most most helpful? If I, any. I wish I could recommend one, but this is something that I hear a lot of friends who are starting to hire and build their teams. They have 10, 15, 20 people, and they're starting to realize, hey, this is actually pretty important. And they come to me and they go, "Uh, I want to hire a project manager. How do I hire the best project manager? And I say, basically, get ready to eat shit for the next two years. Because it's really hard. And there's no great book that's going to lay it out because it is inherently complex and messy. And the, the fact of the matter is the first hire you make is going to be not good. The second's not good. The fifth, but eventually you're going to find, you're going to learn what works, what doesn't. And by the way, it would be different for my company than another company. We just worked with it. We did a partnership with this other company and they start their meetings off by doing like a cheer and they, you know, they like sing songs and our company does not do that. Okay? The Beats company starts with, yeah. Ritual sing painting. Kumbaya. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, and that's great. Their company is awesome and our company is awesome in its own way. So um, nothing I could say would help them except that the best advice I could give them is you have to go through the fire. You got to do it. You're going to make mistakes. Just kind of accept that. Well, it reminds me of this story that the uh, director, writer, musician, polymath Robert Rodriguez told me where he goes to these film festivals and he's had all these huge blockbusters now and film students or would-be filmmakers come up to him and they go, yeah, you know, 
I want to do this, but this happened. And then we didn't have enough money for that. And well, you know, you can't do A, B, and C because this happened. And he said, what they don't realize is that's the job of filmmaker. Nothing is going to work. And it's up to you. Like that is the starting point. Like literally the job description begins with nothing is going to work. And then you have to figure it out. Uh, now, I want to talk to you a little bit about something we were chatting about in the green room, which uh, I think you're particularly good at, and that is uh, interacting with haters and belligerent people on the internet. Uh, what? So I've never had anyone send me an email like that in my life. <laughs> so, so some people like golf, some people like boxing, some people like, I don't know, badminton. You like interacting with belligerent people on the internet. Love it. So I do with every so, single one. So, so can you can you describe for us the the rules of engagement and sort of best practices for this sport? Okay, let me break it down for you. Everybody listen up cuz you're going to get one of these people in your life. I'll tell you that right now. First of all, so twisted. <laughs> when it is very it's very sadistic. Okay, when do you get the chance to talk to somebody who runs up to you in the street and says like f you? Never. It never happens cuz people don't do that in the street, right? But online, they do it all the time. Yeah, yeah. And then and then I think about like I don't really feel much at risk because like if I went to a comedy show, if I go to Comedy Cellar, I would never dream of heckling the comedian because that's their job. They're always going to win. So I sit there politely and I listen and I laugh and then I leave. <laughs> when somebody comes in and sends you a message but you see 50 or 100 of them a day, there's no chance of them winning. And I actually so I I love it because I get the chance to interact with someone I normally would never uh interact with. If you play it right, you can get to see inside their mind and actually learn something pretty interesting. Sometimes they might leave it at just F you. But like over time, I've come to realize it's very mathematical. Of 100 people that email me, so they'll say something like F you or whatever. Just very... Just to translate, that's Burmese. It's fuck you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I'll go, I'll say something like, why? Because what you need to do at this point, you need to bring it down. You need to tone it down. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Or I'll say, what's wrong? Are you having a bad hair day? Yeah. And, and then what, it's very fascinating what happens next. So 50% of people never respond. You guys find that interesting? They sent you this email. You respond back. They don't respond at all. So what's up with that? Now, if you really wanted to find out, you could re-reply a day later and track that. So what is up with that? Okay, I'll tell you what's okay. So, so let me 25% of people are going to double down and get really, really angry. In which case, you double down and put a picture of someone with a really bad hair day. Yeah. <laughs> and now they don't know what to do. <laughs> 25%, and this is, this is why it was all worth it. They go, Oh my God, I didn't know you were actually going to read this. And now you have a discussion, right? Now you can find out why did they send that. And I, this happens to me all the time. I cannot even tell you how, how often. And it is so fascinating to get the chance to talk to someone who's been on my email list for, say, four years. They never have written me. They've literally gotten tens of thousands of pages of material. We've sent them for free. And they, the first thing they wrote was F you. I go, I go, what's up? Why'd you say that? And they go, you know, some random joke I made on page three of this email really set them off. And, and they just had to write back. They had to write back, and most of them, they still say, I didn't think anyone would actually read it. I find it so fascinating that in the world where we are so connected to other people, there's so many people that feel that no one is actually listening, that they would send an email 
knowing that no one's going to read it. That's what they believe. They would send it with all this emotionally loaded language and they would just send it out there. But when someone actually listens, they're, they're struck. And that's when you can start engaging with them. I find it totally fascinating. So another technique, another judo move that I've seen you do on Twitter uh, specifically, which I admire, uh, and uh, Chris Saka is also very good at this. You should check out his technique. Is when someone will be like, "Hey, fuck you, scam artist! What the fuck? Ah, get rich! Ha ha ha! LOLs!" You know, and you'll res- and 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 you'll respond with something like, "Interesting. I'm I'm intrigued. Tell me more." And then they don't know what to do because they're expecting you either respond with some anger, respond with something trying to be clever, but instead you're like, "Interesting." Okay, so. Here's the thing. People are pattern matching, right? If you, if you read Cialdini's book, Influence, he talks about click were. It, it, you, you do something and people are going to respond. Very programmatic. Were? It's like, it's a, he's... Oh, re- I got it. Were. Yeah. yeah. It's, people are programmatic. So if you write someone an angry email, they're almost always going to write back really angry. But for me, there's no... I'm not angry at them, right? I haven't done anything. They, all they did was send me an email, which I've seen a thousand other people send. And I know it's not me. I know that because that email that they're reading got sent out to like a million other people and they all loved it. So it's probably not me. It's probably something going on with them. And I want to know. So when you sort of respond in a way that's not the obvious, then all of a sudden you shift the entire conversation. Now, if I wrote back and said, F you, now it's, it, they, that's what they expected and they feed on that. But when you change the whole dynamic... I think that's when you can have a really interesting discussion. Same thing for business, by the way. If you're looking at markets where, for example, if you were trying to create another Princeton review today, or you're trying to write another personal finance book, you probably don't want to go with the same click were programmatic strategy. You want to try to analyze what is missing in the market. How are people not being taken care of or responded to instead of going with the same thing that everyone else is doing? So, so Josh, I want to ask you a question. Uh, are you famous on the internet for? handling haters well i don't even know. i barely know what the internet is <laughs> i but you know this is a this is actually a really great fight principle now i don't have any experience interacting with haters on the internet but i but i do have quite a bit of experience interacting with people who essentially say that in person and it, it, wait, it's, wait. so wait 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 I, so you opt not to be on facebook but then you go out and find people who are going to say fuck you in person. What no, you, I'm, I'm talking about like doing? competing in martial arts. Oh, I see. Right? All right. And so like it, it's it's amazing. I spent years training at how to deal with um, fighting dirty opponents. So, you know, people who, you know, in, in some kind of martial arts exchange after the bell will target your eyes or your, chess or chess. Yeah. Chess is like kicking you under the table or cheating with like talking to a coach and, you know, the chess world. But in martial arts, it's a little bit less subtle. Like they'll actually try to like, you know kick you in the balls in between or you know, take out your knees in, in between rounds. It gets pretty wild or targeting your, your eyes, neck. Um, and initially it will throw you off. But I trained for years because I had to win national world championships. You need to be able to deal with these guys and, and be at your best when they're at their worst. And so I, I spent a lot of years bringing in the, the dirtiest players I could find and learning how to, how to play with them in the, in the gym and then I remember this time in the 2002 um, World Championships in, in Taiwan, I was fighting this Austrian guy and he was just the textbook dirty player. He was, he was doing this. He was like trying to bust my knees up after the bell. He was just all, he t- hit me, you know, two solid, like straight up groin shots, which were well-placed. Um, 
And, but, but I'd done all this training at this. And so I was focusing very purely and I was smiling at him, which is kind of your move. And he was so used to people responding to his dirty play with anger that when I didn't give it to him and I smiled at him, he, he got desperate and he kept on, you know, doing more and more outrageous things. And when I responded with no emotion, he, at the end of the fight, he was basically throwing himself on the floor. I mean, he was completely destroying himself because he needed my response like a leg. That was a leg he was used to leaning on. And so like the, I, I, I think your principle is brilliant and I practice the in-person version of it it's, a lot. It's interesting how much they apply. And also I noticed something you just offhandedly said that you trained with dirtier players and that's something you'll find true of a lot of people who are at the top of their game. They, they find something that is interesting that's helping them develop and then they will actively seek it out. Like what person in their right mind would seek out dirty players and fight against them? Only someone who wants to be the best. Well, it's a very interesting thing that happens, you know, in in different forms of competition, which is that if somebody plays outside the rules, the typical response is righteous indignation, right? Because like that person isn't playing by these rules, which are arbitrary rules anyway. So like the weakness of almost any martial artist is the dogma of his sport, right? And we could go through different martial arts like, you know, judo guys, for example, are incredible fighters, but the, rule, the rules of judo is that you can't line it on your back. And so they'll turn themselves and land on their stomach in the middle of a throw, which is, you know, exposed to their back to being choked out in a real fight, right? Or jujitsu guys might have a bias against footlocks, right? Or will, may not be such good strikers. Or like in Chinese martial arts, people believe it's not honorable to fight on the ground. And so you build all this, you know, you kind of make a cult of your inhibitions and you... Make a cult of your inhibitions. Yeah, I think that's actually the... That's, it's the I think it's... That actually comes from... My dad used that line in one of his books. I think it's a great, it's a great term. Because people basically have some kind of insecurity or inhibition. Um, and they, they build a cult out of it. Like they, they, they protect it. They, they, instead of taking it on, instead of find, finding the dirty player to, um, you know, to go at your neck and your eyes. And, and so, like, for example, as a fighter, the way this manifests is that someone takes out charts targeting your Adam's apple and your eyeballs and you don't know how to deal with it, you're going to be furious because it's, you don't know technically how to deal with it. But if you train it how to deal with it, then you're not going to have that emotional reaction. So, so we've talked about <clears throat> fighting Austrians. I want to talk about dancing bears. This is going somewhere. Bear with me. I'm not on LSD um, yet. No, that's a joke. Don't try this at <laughs> home, kids. We're trained professionals on a close course. Uh, so Josh is uh recluse is that fair yeah so josh go josh <laughs> when he's when he's not fighting dirty austrians prefers to be left alone for the most part occasionally i'll drag him out to do something like this in part because he will most certainly text me the next day and go you fucking fuck you fucking fuck uh which i find endearing uh but he does not engage on the internet does zero media and I admire that because you're able to get a lot of deep work done. And it's a challenge for me. I'm able to do it, but it takes a lot more effort because I've exposed myself, uh, not in a criminal way, but in a very public way. And uh, could, you, could you explain? So we will sometimes joke when we're forced or volunteer in my case to do something uh, in front of a lot of people or to do something like a speaking engagement, like Dance, baby, dance. And we'll talk about the bear. So could you, could you give us some context on where this came from? Yeah. Oh, so I have some history with this, this theme because I, you know, when I was 11 years old, my dad's book, Searching for Bobby Fisher, came out. And then when I was 15 years old, the movie came out. And it was a big deal. And so I was thrust into this mainstream media spotlight without, you know, asking to be. 
And that was in the middle of my chess career. And so I had this deep love for this, for, for, for this art. And, and I was so passionate about it, but I had so much um, attention on me that I found myself getting pulled into this externalized relationship with my first love. And it was heartbreaking. And I didn't have the internal tools to resist that pull. And I've had several times in my life when I've kind of had to do some, so I used to develop this computer chess program called Chess Master, and I had to do, you know, press things for that. And then I wrote um, The Art of Learning, and I had to do this big, you know, what you're doing right now, and which you're awesome at. <laughs> and, um, and during that time, I got pulled into the public speaking tour quite a bit, because everyone wanted it. But the thing is that nothing really calcifies the growth process, in my opinion, like people who are on the speaking tour because they're being asked to speak about the same ideas that they spoke about the year before and the year before they wrote about three years ago and it's supposed to break new ground and i'm i'm personally allergic to anything that will calcify or slow down my growth process because i love learning more than i love anything and and so i have this ingrained like allergy to um to anything that externalizes my relationship with the game so the last public like keynote address that I ever gave was a lot of years ago. Some speaking agency, you know, convinced me to work with them and I was doing some talks and I was conflicted about it and I had all these ethical constraints on them and they talked me into going to this event in Florida. What were the ethical constraints? Just that I would only work with like beautiful companies that were helping the world and that were awesome. And they're like, oh, one of these guys. <laughs> hey, one of these guys. So they just completely bullshit me about what I was going to go do. And I, I went out to Florida thinking I was working with this group they told me was like giving donating all these medical supplies to um you know the countries in africa and i thought it was awesome and beautiful turns out i was going to the national sales convention of this big like group and and i just was literally the follow-up act to a monkey on stage and i was a literal, about, a literal it was actually a monkey there was a monkey on stage that was doing like <laughs> are you smarter than a monkey or something and i i was you know my <laughs> I just like, I live my life in the realm, like authenticity is the most important thing to me. And I was going to speak about like my pain and my ideas from chess and martial arts and stuff that I kind of love. And then I was just feeling this, this wild hilarity of being the follow back to a monkey and being just, yeah, that was the way the dancing bear thing came from. So, so that, I, that was the last keynote address I ever gave. And so now I only will do a public, I mean, I only do public things, frankly, with you. I mean, I, th I think it's in the last many, many years. That's all I've done. And then um, if I give a talk, it's always a Q&A, which is a dynamic dialogue where I actually can feel like I can learn from because you're speaking to a small group or a big group, group of really brilliant people who are all in on their training process. And um, it's an exploration that I can learn from from their questions. And so um, that's where the dancing bear comes from. Follow back to a monkey. <laughs> a real monkey. Are you smarter than a monkey? <sighs> that's coming up next, folks. So stand by. Uh <sighs> What book or writer or could be thinker has most influenced each of you in the last, say, year? Or someone who's really just influenced you? Adam, do you have any thoughts on uh, who or what that might be? Well, I'm always foraging for ideas. So, so uh, for example, Cialdini's book, Influence. Uh, uh, but I, I read far afield because the ideas in investing come from outside the domain. If you want to have an insight in whatever your field is, it helps to look outside your field. So I read constantly. And, and uh, I read poetry. I like Rumi. Uh, um, so actually, someone say Rumi. Because uh, he's, he's got me in touch with the mystical and, and the mysterious and the magical in life. Do you in gift life. many books? I'm sorry? Do you gift books to other people? I gift all the time. So I'm, if, I'm, I'm so, a world your, champion what, gift giver. What are your... 
It's really, it's so really that's, true. That's like Adam the fifth is domain. so many books, gifts. It's amazing to me and my son Jack. He's like he is a world champion gift giver. I think that's absolutely. So I, I'm just, this is going to be a digression, which is kind of my thing. Uh, so I remember once reading a bedtime story to Jack. Long story. Uh, and the book was Giraffes Can't Dance. <laughs> yeah. And this book for like two weeks has been just decapitating me on Amazon. This book is a juggernaut. It is it is just seriously killing the Whoa. top ten list on Amazon. <laughs> Every Christmas, Giraffes Can't Dance will kick your ass. And you just blew it up on your podcast. I did. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's that's like Harakiri, I think that's what that's Jack called. Loves that book. I will have to delay the publication of this esteemed podcast featuring drafts. Can't dance. First one's on me, guys. Um, <laughs> come sponsor my podcast. Uh, where the hell was I? Oh, yes. So the you've given a lot of books as gifts. What books have you gifted most often to other people? Is there a short list or just those that come to mind that you've gifted more than once? No, it's really unique to each person. Um, so, so there's no one book because each each gift is reflects something I want to share with that person. But I would imagine there have to be uh, some generally applicable books that you've enjoyed that you've given to more than one person, or is that not the case? Oh, I'd have to think about that. Okay, I, we'll come back. Yeah, come back to that. We'll come back. We that's got Rumi and we got question. Giraffes Can't Dance. By the way, I can't let Ramit's <laughs> fuck you um, thing go. If, if any of you want to get in touch with him, you now know how to get his attention. <laughs> oh, God. So, so what have I done? If, if you have, if, wait, if you have business opportunities, uh, anything... <laughs> And uh, and I believe this this works well with with everyone. Thanks so, so much. <laughs> and if you and if you want Josh to do a speaking engagement, uh, you have to practice your dirty fighting skills and uh, figure out kick how him in the groin. Good, yeah, <laughs> groin kicks. That'll get uh, his attention. And for all the people who've been asking me to introduce them to Josh to do media, he's not going to do it. Uh, he would rather be uh, fighting and cooking turkeys and uh, riding his one wheel around surfing. And surfing, which is a big thing. So, Ramit, what about you in terms of uh, thinkers or books or anything really that's influenced your thinking a lot in the last year? Um, I read a lot of military books. Um, I think that the military is amazing at building training programs and identifying people who are good and then making them great. So, especially at the special operations level um, and having met some of those folks and doing some work with them, it's pretty outstanding the way that they can cultivate mastery. Uh, so that's, that's great. Books I gifted, um, Gift of Fear um, is an amazing book, um, particularly for women, but I actually think everybody. Uh, learning to Trust Your Intuition. That's Gavin DeBecker? Yeah, Gavin DeBecker. Um, and he talks about... Who, by the way, just not to interrupt, but does, has a company that does very high-end security, security details for yeah. high-profile folks. Exactly. Uh, trusting Your Intuition. Knowing when the little intent at the back of your head goes up and you can't see anything and we so often say, it's nothing. I'm, I'm going to walk down that alley or I'm going to just go into my house like normal, but listen and learn to trust your intuition because we have it, but it kind of gets suppressed because we don't want to be that weird person. So that's a great, that's a great gift. I, I can't recommend it enough. Two books I wish I could uh, gift more. Um, Charlie Munger's... Uh, Poor Charlie's Almanac. Yeah, Poor Charlie. I mean, amazing book on mental models, super dense, and nobody wants to get that book as a gift. 
I mean, <laughs> it's a gift you have to buy, not get gifted. Uh, yeah. That one, and also Breakthrough Advertising, which I think is one of the most sophisticated books on marketing ever written. Super dense. I read it every year. I learn something new. There's Who's the author? Um, Eugene Schwartz. Eugene Schwartz. And uh, amazing, amazing book on copywriting and, and really human psychology. Uh, but again, nobody wants to get that as a gift. Uh, look it up and buy it if you want it, but it's fantastic. What about you, Josh? Uh, and, and I'll give you two options here. It could be someone or something that has really changed your or informed your thinking in the last year. Uh, or it could be something that you're really looking into subject matter wise or a particular thinker diving into in the coming year. Well, you and I have talked about books a lot. Right, so we're just gonna set that. Well, we don't have to. Yeah, <laughs> we don't we've have done to a lot of best books. Set the record on the on yeah. the platter and play the same track. Yeah, but uh, subject matter wise, uh, yeah, I I am. Um, so my foundation of books, which we, like of which we've discussed, of you know, Lao Tzu, Hemingway, um, Jack Kerouac, Robert Persig. These are books that were really important to me recently, and we've discussed all these. So we're not gonna. Yeah, but I have a question for you about one of them. Which one? Can we jump in? Yeah, let's do it. So the, the Tao Te Ching? The Tao Te Ching, yeah. Okay. So this has come up a lot in the podcast. A lot of people like it. Rick Rubin, yourself. Yeah. But if I recommend that book to, say, 10 people, of those 10, two may seem to enjoy it, and eight are like, what is this? <laughs> I can't make any sense out of it. It's just like a book of fortune cookies. What? Yeah. It's so what ambiguous. Is, there's no there there. Like, what the hell is this? So what are they missing? Or my, how should they read it? My favorite definition of wisdom comes from the, the, um, the glossary of Robert Thurman's translation of the Vimalakirti Sutra, and it's tolerance of cognitive dissonance. And that's what Lao Tzu is about, right? So if you read the Tao Te Ching, first of all, I think it, w- it depends what translation you read. You need to read, in my opinion, the Jia Fu Feng and Jane English version. Say that one more time. Jia Fu Feng and Jane English translation of okay. the Tao Te Ching, I think, is the most is the most true that I've run into. And I, I think I've read them all. I, I don't read ancient Chinese, so I, I've had to kind of circle it. So um, amazing. And a lot yeah. of these are, are a lot of, I almost took up reading, learning ancient Chinese years ago for that one purpose. But the, the, the reason, a lot of these translations are sort of thesis statements, which take away the ambiguity. And I think a lot of people don't want to tolerate cognitive dissonance. I mean, Lao Tzu doesn't tell you what to do. It's, it's Okay, a, so is yeah. it the lack of specific prescription that is kind of a, almost a, a Rorschach test of, of sense. I mean, you're looking at the tea leaves and like what you see tells you how you interpret it tells you what you need to know as opposed well, this to this principle that um, Ramit was speaking about, um, you know, the response to aggression with empty space with nonviolence. I mean, this is this is at the essence of of Lao Tzu. Um, for me, it was very important during my period, the period where I was transitioning where I was dealing with with this existential crisis in my chess career, where I'd been working with a coach for several years who was urging me to, to study um, the opposite style from what was natural to me. I was being pulled into this externalized relationship to things. And it was a, it was a kind of the entrance into my philosophical exploration of self-expression, of, of authenticity, of, of, of a deeply intrinsic relationship to my search for truth as opposed to um, being driven by the external, competing... Um, from the inside out as opposed to the outside in. So it was a big part of my, my foundation in, um, in self-development. So maybe that's, that's, that's a, and all those books that I just meant, those authors that I just mentioned were a huge part of that. In the last year, um, I have to tell you, this is a brilliant book. 
I, I, Tim sent me an advanced, advanced copy. I think, I mean, this Tools of Titans is a, I'm not, I, Tim and I are dear friends. I love the guy, but I give him so much shit. Like, I, trust me, I'm not saying this if, if it isn't true. I, I, um, it's a goldmine. I, I mean, your podcast is brilliant and I believe it's your, it's your calling in a lot of ways, at least in this period of your life, because you, you've taken the art of deconstruction, um, which I think is your finest art. And I think, and you've, you've developed this, this medium with which you can study people and get to the essence of them you know, so quickly. And I'm stunned by how you can have so many conversations that are deeply meaningful. Um, and you can really get to the essence of someone studying them for, you know, a few days or a week. I mean, I couldn't fucking do that. It, it's, it's a beautiful thing to see, to, to see then you have this, this is, you're bringing it to the world. You're gifting the best ideas of a lot of, you know, who you consider brilliant people um, through this podcast, but then you have to listen to, you know, two, three hour talks, which is awesome, but it's a lot of people on the patients and this is a way of just shortcutting your way. And so I think this is actually a gold mine. I've been reading it and loving it myself. Thanks, Josh. I, um, I really mean that. Thanks, man. Yeah. It's true, dude. Thanks, man. I wouldn't no, say it wasn't I, true. I didn't slip him with 20. He's an yeah. expensive date. Uh, thank you, Josh. The other, another book, which I think is really important right now um, is a buddy of mine um, who you had on, Sebastian Younger, his book, Tribe. Yes, 100% agreed. Yeah, I thought your interview with him was beautiful. You guys really, like, the introduction of these two guys was hilarious. Like, the text exchange to get them to, like, loosen their shit up with one another was really <laughs> funny, but finally they did. And I thought that was a, you know, Sebastian's been studying evolutionary psychology. <laughs> in a, so we were, <laughs> we, so Josh introduced us. It's ridiculous. Sort of doing this like, very nice to meet you, sir. Yes, good day, sir. This very kind of weirdly formal my exchange. And so Josh jumped in a few, a few levels down. He's like, guys, loosen the fuck up. <laughs> I was like, okay, all right. Uh, Tribe, I highly, highly recommend. It's a great short read. So, so I've, I've asked people oftentimes, and we are going to do some Q&A in about uh, 12 minutes. So... Hold your horses, but we'll we'll definitely get there shortly. Uh, the question I've asked often, and there are many, but is what advice would you give your thirty-year-old self or your twenty-year-old self? Tends to produce one or two of the same answers. I wouldn't say anything because I wouldn't want to change where I am or enjoy it. Very common. the The question, though, that I'd like to pose is is a bit different, and it is, what advice do you think the happiest version of your eighty-year-old self? would give you now. Uh, so anyone who wants to tackle that is welcome to, to give it a shot. Well, let me riff off of something that Josh said about, you know, you're talking about the book where two people love it and eight people are like, what is this? And I think that in this day and age, we are given so much advice. And as someone who's in the advice industry, I see it and I have a healthy disdain for a lot of advice. And, you know, if you, if you follow the advice that people give you, you got to wake up and by 3am you need to be hustling and you need to be doing all this stuff until, you know, and it's crazy. You can't do all this stuff and feasibly be a normal human being. Uh, I had books that people told me I need to read and I opened them up and I'm like, this book is shit. I, who the hell? And but like twenty people I like told me to read it, and then Wait, give me an example. Can you think of one? Yes, because I ended up loving it. So here's a classic, simple example. Four hour work week. No. <laughs> <laughs> when I was when I was like in my early twenties, I read Twenty Two Immutable Laws of Marketing oh, okay. uh, or, or Branding, and I'm like, what is this? And I just and then I picked it up again when I was thirty, and I'm like, this is awesome. 
I wasn't ready for it. And I'm glad that I gave it another chance because I didn't have the context. And I'm willing to bet, and I'm not saying that I got better. I just, things just changed. And by the time I was 30, I was ready for it. Guarantee this book. Maybe some of the people just don't like it and that's fine. But maybe some of them don't have the context or they're not ready or it's just not integral. Right now, you know, everybody, in, including in the book, which I love, um, meditation is a classic thing. I don't meditate. And I try not to feel guilty about it because I don't think it's the right time in my life. Like I wake, I have a very calm mind. Um, and I have the, you know, the ways that I like to enjoy and, and all that stuff. It just doesn't involve meditation. Um, but I'm sure because I, I believe that most of us are basically the same in most parts of life. And if we embrace that, then we can optimize it and we can free up that 2% that we're different and get really unique and, and special. I bet you that as I get a little bit older, I will become more spiritual. I will probably meditate. These are classic things that happen. Um, I, I think if I were 80 years old, I would look back and say, uh, listen to the advice and hear what people are telling you to do. But if it doesn't feel right, it's okay to say, you know what, I'm going to put that aside, come back to it in a year or five years. And maybe at that point, the book will be great, or I'll be ready to meditate. But I just, I don't have interest in it right now. It just doesn't feel right. And that's okay. I don't need to do what everybody else says. I want to do what's right for me, be a great version of myself, improve, but be really judicious about who you're listening to and what you're applying. I think also, you mentioned intuition and the gift of fear. This is something I've really tried hard to resurrect for myself in the last few years because I've been driven by pro and con lists and spreadsheets and this, that, and the other thing using my left side of the brain. It's simplistic, obviously, but just trying to use an analytical framework for everything and took a lot of wrong turns. I'd be like, this deal is great. And then I remember at one point ages ago, this girlfriend said to me, but wait, do you trust this guy at all? I was like, not really. And she's like, oh, Jesus. And then I did the deal. And of course, it was a disaster. Uh, so, so I think the intuition is also really important to develop an ear for when you're making those types of decisions to put things aside. Uh, Adam, what, about, what would your 80-year-old self tell you now? Well, one of my favorite quotes was uh, by one of my heroes, Juan Belmonte. And Juan Belmonte uh, was sort of the Rocky of bullfighting in the early part of this century. He fought pre-antibiotics. Uh, so even a scratch of a bull's horn, you could die from that. They used to call him the flying matador because he was so bad the bulls would just keep tossing him in the air. But he was <laughs> really... I did not, not see that coming. <laughs> And there's, there's a quote in there that I, I love, and, and actually one I'd really like to share, because it's, it's, it's germane to everything we do. And because and, and, we hear about achieving and performance and being our best selves. And he said, mind you, this is a bullfighter who rose from poverty to be the best bullfighter of all time. And um, with no aptitude for the, for the sport. Really, and you know, you're bad at martial arts or surfing, whatever, you know, but you're bad at bullfighting, you die. And, and um, anyway, so he said the following. He said, um, he said, no life worthy of the name consists of anything more than the continual series of struggles to develop one's character through the medium of whatever one has chosen as a career which is fascinating because now your career becomes reframed as merely something 
with which you're going to develop your character. And so, so I think that's what my 80-year-old self would, would just remind me of that. Keep working on your, your character. It really doesn't matter what you do. What aspect of your character are you most trying to develop in your current primary? Fearlessness. What was that? Fearlessness. Fearlessness. Good answer. Yeah. Uh, Josh, it's a tough act to follow. That was beautiful, man. <laughs> <laughs> I have trouble remembering four word quotes. That was amazing. That was, that was really <laughs> I'm like, to be or not to ha- have? Uh. All right. Josh, uh, about your 80-year-old self. Well, I'm in the midst of this transition from being a, a, a fighter, a competitor, um, and then literally a fighter, to being a nurturer, primarily. And my relationship to the sport that I'm taking on now is paddle surfing, which is my fourth big mountain in terms of my own training, is much more about receptivity um, and feeling the ocean and entering it, like entering that sweet spot of enormous power of something that's traveled thousands of miles. And, and so th- 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 a big reason that I've, I've gone that way is because I feel that, that the art of receptivity um, and is just a never ending pool. I intuit from here. Um, and so receptivity and love is a huge, is a huge part of, of what I, I intuit is, is where I'll be focused for the next 10, 20, 30 years. And so I would say from here that like, that's what, from my perspective now, that's what I would think my 80 year old self would be, would be telling me to, to focus on is, is, um, deep listening to humans and, and nature and, and what's moving most elementally inside of myself. Um, I'm a completely devoted dad. And, um, I don't, I think that I, I can't imagine my 80 year old self saying anything, but, you know, seize every moment you can with these little dudes and give them every ounce of love you can. Um, and I also, you know, I, I feel in myself now a commitment to living life, you know, every last drop as fully as, as I can ever live it. And honestly, this is, I, I live in New York now and, and this is putting that into a, into question because I'm so passionate about, about the, I'm a, I love New York. I've lived, I'm a New Yorker. I, I, I love this city, but, but I'm yearning for nature right now. I feel in some ways that living on the water is what's needed for this next surge of, of me living life as fully as possible in you know, my own development. And so I think that that's the direction my 80-year-old self would be giving me a kick in the ass, but, um, but he'll be a lot wiser than I am. So There's so many questions I want to ask. We'll have to, we'll have to continue this. But uh, let's start with one, which is, what is some of the worst advice that you hear given out in your world? And you can choose world however you want to define it. That could be past career, current career, could be circle of friends, could be anything like that. But or a, a terrible piece of advice doesn't have to be the worst, but a common piece of advice. Uh, and I mean, I'll, I'll buy some time here. I mean, for me, I remember applying to colleges and having my guidance counselor in high school tell me to lower all of my standards because I wanted. I had my reach schools, my A list. I had my. I think I can get into B list schools and then my safety schools. And he said, No, no, no. <laughs> he laughed. He said, "Oh, Tim, silly, silly boy! You need to take your safety schools and make those your reach schools. <laughs> You're like five paragraphs too high here, and uh, not realizing at the time, I realized this soon thereafter that his incentive was to be able to say 
X percentage of my students got into their first choice college. The easiest way to do that is to make everyone lower their standards. So hmm. that was a terrible piece of advice that I received and a terrible advice, piece of advice that I hear a lot. Um, hmm. So the antithesis of that would be hold the standard, which is the advice, for instance, uh, at the Fat Duck, which was at the time the number one ranked uh, restaurant in the world. Heston Blumenthal said that to someone I've had on this podcast, Chris Young. He's like, hold the standard because he tried to pass something off that was like 99% perfect, but not 100%. Uh, so anyone want to take a stab at that? Do it the way that guy did it. Do it the way that guy yeah, did it. Yeah, like pe- people give advice all the time that you should f- you should follow this prescriptive path to success. Yep. Um, and I think that excellence is all about self-expression. Mm-hmm. And so people look outside and try to replicate the path of somebody else. But then when the shit hits the fan, as it always do- does when the pressure's on, you, you, it's not coming from inside of you. How much of self how much of self, let's just say, Tim, Josh, and so on, is discovery versus creation in your mind? In other words, like, great question. Do you start with the raw materials of, of everything that Josh represents? And then it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a process of pulling back the layers of the onion and discovering these different pieces, or is it really just tabula rasa? I think they're entangled. I think that as we're discovering ourselves, we're creating ourselves. I mean, I think about this in the context of someone taking on an art. Um, They have to understand who they are. I think people should do what they love and they should do it in a way that they love. Um, But that evolves. And so it's it's not stuck. It's not static. It's dynamic. It's dynamic quality versus static quality. And so there's, there's the act of creation in the discovery process. And I mean, I've experienced like the biggest losses that I've had and the biggest disappointments that I've had have led to the biggest wins of my life. Um, in many ways, that's because I created myself based on my, the response to, to that experience. Um, and I think that it's, it's, it's actually really an important part of this principle of, you know, unobstructed self-expression, doing it from what's on, inside out, is that that's always changing and you have to be attuned to it. So I, I would, the way I would respond to that would be that intuitively they're, they're fundamentally entangled in navigating that, that entanglement is a big part of the genius and the growth curve. You agree? Um, I I do agree. Well, it's it's I I agree that that is an interesting viewpoint to have on it. It's something that I'm. I'm <laughs> that sounds like a dickish way of saying I didn't understand a thing that you just said. But it's not. It's just that I I I don't have a firm position on it. Uh, it's something that I'm exploring for myself and thinking through myself. So that's why I hang out with these guys is to get something to chew on. So I have to chew on that. I don't know if I agree with it. I don't know either. You just asked the question. I thought <laughs> yeah. That's what I think. Uh, uh, Ramit? I, I heard one of the most interesting pieces of advice recently, and it uh, blew up uh, something I'd believed my whole life. So my friend uh, Nick Gray runs a company on museums, and he takes people in museums, and it's, he gives them tours that are really cool. And he was talking about how he goes to a museum himself. And he said, if I go to a museum... I'm spending 90 minutes max and the first 30 minutes are in the cafe planning where I'm going to go. Hmm. And I'm sitting there saying, wait, what? And I said, what do you mean? The way I was raised, you know, we would go to a museum maybe once every five years, maybe as kids, we'd save up our money to go there and we would spend seven hours going every level because we knew we were never going to go back. And what Nick was saying was in so many words, have the abundance to know that you can go back and don't think that it's once and done. And also know that 
leave at the peak. There's power in leaving at the peak. And it blew my mind to think that my whole life, until that point, 34, that I had just thought, got to go through every single thing and check the box. But really, he's talking about curation. He's talking about abundance, all in a simple one-sentence example. I love it. It also reminds me, we won't dig into it right now, but we've talked about it before, the, the ending on a good rep, ending on quality, really closely related for both, for both achievement in that case and skill development, but also just for appreciation and quality of life. Uh, Adam, what about you? Which question are we talking about here? Uh, yeah, well, what are your thoughts on the last <laughs> 10 minutes of conversation? Uh, bad advice that you've received or heard or that you want to give? <laughs> <laughs> I remember I, I had sold my interest in the Princeton Review and I was, I was wondering what to do next with my life. And I was speaking at the time with two older, very successful, like mega successful uh, businessmen. And um, this is about 20 years ago. And, he, and, and one of them said, I should go into ball bearings. <laughs> <laughs> like he thought for a second, he said, Adam, ball bearings. <laughs> That's great. I love I, that. Right. And I said, I said, he said, okay, stay with me here. He said, he said, all the smart talent from universities and they've gone to Wall Street and they've exhausted whatever is to be found there. And you're crazy smart, but you're competing with other people who are crazy smart. And why do that? And by the way, I thought he was, so he said there were no more possibilities there, which that also was wrong. But the second part was interesting. He said, ball bearings. He said, <laughs> bearings. right, but no, but you'll see the relevance in a second. He said, ball bearings has not had its Edison. Right? He's, no one's gone into ball bearings. So it's, no one's ever thought about ball bearings. It's fertile ground. It's round things, different shapes, but I mean, sorry, different sizes. Um, <laughs> so... So he said, he said it was a metaphor, right? The metaphor was go where no one else, go, go with something that no one's ever looked at. And you look at Uber, like who thought about taxis? You look at Airbnb, you look at the most successful companies and they're, they're pursuing the ball bearings philosophy, right? And, and so the first part that, that opportunities on Wall Street had been exhausted, that part was wrong. But the ball bearings part was right, you know, and... I was talking to a friend and, and I passed on who was wondering what she should do with her career. And I said, oh, ball bearings. Um, <laughs> um, you know, find, find something that I said for, and there was a pencil on the table, like a number two pencil. I said, there, why don't you reinvent the pencil? Look, who thinks about pencils? I don't, <laughs> which means there's an opportunity there. And the wonderful thing about the world is today, you can find any niche and there are enough people in the world that you can make a fortune on number two pencils. So if any of you are wondering what to do with your lives, I mean, they're there, number two pencils um, <laughs> or ball bearings or, but find really uh, cups or it, it doesn't matter. Find something that tables, find something that no one thinks about and think about it. No, it's, it's great advice. And it, it actually reminds me of a trip I had recently. I went to Utah and we went to this, it's not even fair to call it an estate. It was just, it was a, a state. I mean, the guy, this, this single individual basically owned a state. It was this gigantic property. He had his own airstrip. He had 
tons of buildings. He had his own fishing pond, ludicrously wealthy. And I asked what he did to make all of this money. And they go, oh yeah, you know those little like these those little parts of the wing that flip up vertically? He figured those out. Like 10 years ago, something you probably barely notice. And in the aviation world, it's kind of like the equivalent of, of uh, wheels on luggage. It was like, why didn't anybody think of that earlier? And now he just prints money. But it's because he, he took something very unsexy and was willing to dive into it. Uh, well, I want to let these gents have a shot at uh, cavorting and causing trouble in the back. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, let's give a hand for Josh Waitzkin, Ramit Sethi, Adam Robinson. Thanks, guys. Thanks a lot. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? Would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, Check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com, all spelled out, and just drop in your email, and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by Audible, which I've used for years. I love audiobooks, and I have two to recommend right off the bat. Number one is perhaps my favorite audiobook of all time, and that is The Graveyard Book by Neil Gaiman. The only audiobook I've wanted to immediately listen to a second time as soon as I finished. It's amazing. You will thank me. The Graveyard Book. The second is Vagabonding by Rolf Potts, which had a huge impact on my life and formed the basis for a lot of what became the four-hour work week. So, all you need to do to get your free 30-day trial is go to audible.com forward slash Tim, T-I-M, and you can choose one of those two books, or you can choose from more great options than you can possibly imagine. So that could be a book, that could be a magazine, that could be a newspaper, could be a class. It's that easy. Go to audible.com forward slash Tim. That's audible.com forward slash Tim and grab a book. Enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Four Sigmatic. I reached out to these innovative Finnish entrepreneurs of all things because a very skilled acrobat introduced me to one of their products, which is a mushroom coffee made out of chaga mushroom, powerful antioxidant, considered a superfood. I was introduced to chaga by Laird Hamilton, of all people, and another mushroom called lion's mane, which is considered a nootropic or a smart drug. And I had half a packet, let me put this in perspective, tasted just like coffee, just add the hot water, only 20 milligrams in half a packet of caffeine. That's as, as little as one-tenth what you would find in a strong cup of coffee. And I was on fire for the entire day. I probably got more done in that day than I got done in the three or four days prior to that. So I would highly recommend checking it out. It is very impressive. You will not see visuals, so you can use it for work. And you can check it out at foursigmatic.com forward slash Tim. That's foursigmatic, S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com forward slash Tim. And use the code Tim 
to get 20% off your first order. I highly encourage you to try it out.